Hello and welcome to Future Curious from Nesta, the podcast that predicts the future by talking to those who are creating it. I'm Tin and Duyeb. What would you say if I told you the way to make effective changes to society is by being the exact opposite of history's most famous supersonic turbojet? It might seem odd on first thought, but that's what Chief Executive of Nesta, Jeff Mulgan, would advise. And he should know, as he's been at the helm of oh so many successful and exciting innovations and developments. So many, in fact, that you might call him an ideas man, except that Jeff wouldn't really like that. He much prefers to be an invisible facilitator, part of a bigger team that helps others create something sustainable for a better future. Not literally invisible, of course. That's still on the Nesta technology to-do pinboard. After nine years at Nesta, Jeff is handing over the reins to a new CEO. And so we grabbed a chat with him to ask him all about the bees and the trees, why getting involved in the community might be the way to happiness, and why it's really important to be the opposite of Concord. It turns out sound barriers really aren't the ones to conquer. Heads up, we had some sound issues on this edition, meaning there are a few pops. Note, they aren't extra ideas as Jeff thinks of them. Do persevere, though, as he's a very interesting man. I started by asking him what changes he's noticed during his time working in social innovation. Enjoy what we like to call the Jeffisode. Well, in a way, there always have been social innovations, lots of things we take for granted, like kindergartens or public libraries. They all began their life as innovative, often quite radical uh, ideas. I think what's changed in the last 20 or 30 years is a realisation of the gulf between how well the world does technology innovation in some respects. It invests huge amounts of public and private money on you know, new kinds of um, digital tools or new drugs or new aircraft and almost nothing comparable for inventing new ways of handling social issues. And that may be one of the reasons why in people's lives they feel this disappointment, this frustration, this sense of society is not quite working, even if on paper the economy is growing quite strongly. Now, one of the reactions to that is to look for a big leader, sort of populist, authoritarian guy to sort of sort things out. And that is uh, all over the world we're seeing as one response to that mismatch between sort of economic and technological progress and social stagnation. But I think the other answer is to try and accelerate society's own ability to solve its own problems, to be creative, to innovate. And that's one of the things Nesta does. You know, we are a funder of lots of grassroots projects. It's something many other foundations and philanthropists are doing. We're beginning to see politicians around the world embracing social innovation. So Macron's government in France is this year doing a big new push on social innovation. There are mayors in cities like Seoul in Korea or Barcelona who've really adopted this as an agenda, but it's nothing remotely as visible as the populist authoritarian response to the same problems, the, the Trumps and Modis and Salvinis and so on. So my hope is the network of people all over the world who are turning social innovation from an idea into a reality, I hope we can together offer people a more positive response to the imbalances, the problems, the mismatches of our times. Are we in need of innovation or, or social innovation in democracy at the moment? As we're talking, the news is quite turbulent and there are questions about the current state of democracy. What does innovation in democracy look like? What should we be looking to for that? So we think this is a really exciting field and really vital. Most of the forms of democracy took shape in the 19th century. Uh, big parties elections every four or five years, sending people to a parliament to sit in a chamber. That's what democracy meant in the late 19th century. 
every other aspect of our lives has been transformed in recent years, particularly thanks to digital. But that part of democracy has hardly been touched at all. So in the last few years, we've been working with innovators around the world who are really reimagining how do you run elections or parliaments or cities. And all the best innovations actually involve the public much more in a sophisticated dialogue about what are the issues, what are the options, how will you have trade-offs. And we've shown in some of our reports and some of the software we helped develop here at Nesta, which is now in use in 90 cities around the world, how you can reinvent democracy to tap into the collective intelligence for society rather than just either like referendums, yes-no choices, which often are not very smart way to make decisions, or for that matter, just elections every few years between two or three parties. I'm certain in the long run, 21st century democracy will be much closer to what we've been exploring, which is much more, much richer, much smarter, much more sophisticated and nuanced. But at the moment, not surprisingly, our political system is run by people who prospered in the old forms of democracy, and they don't seem to be showing much appetite for changing it right now. You've had a very illustrious career, uh, Jeff, and you've been working now at Nesta for nearly nine years. But I thought a good place to start would be to ask what your path has been into social innovation. What brought you here? Where's your passion for this uh, area come from? Well, I was lucky in a way that quite a few bits of my career, which was an entirely random career, happened to overlap with Nestor interests. So I mean, as a teenager, I was very much an activist. I got involved in you know, homelessness projects and organising teenagers into trade unions and anti-racist marches and this and the other. And through that, got involved in sort of civil society, grassroots, bottom-up action. I then was my first job was working on what is now called the creative economy. In fact, the first big city strategies on how do you build up uh, creative industries as a source of employment and jobs. And those were then copied all over the world. That then later became a big Nestor interest. I worked in government. So and one of Nestor's interests always has been policy. How do you influence you know, top down government? And I, you know, I worked in UK government, Australia, and for quite a few others like Singapore, uh, China, France, etc. And so uh, a number of Nestor's interests, which are about how you do innovation in technology, I guess I'd worked on because my PhD is actually in telecommunications. So I was involved with some of the inventors of the internet uh, back 30 years ago, with government and policy, with the creative economy, but also with what can civil society do to drive innovation. So these bits sort of vaguely came together in Nestor's work. That's quite a wide range. I mean, because also teenage activism is very grassroots, but you've also worked right at the government level. You've seen the very top level of how it works. So that must give you quite a broad idea of how to tackle social policy. Yeah, no, I, I used to use this metaphor of the bees and the trees, which is kind of corny. <laughs> but the basic idea there is the trees are like the big institutions, big business, big government, sort of big money. And they often have the power, they have the resources, but they don't usually have the creativity and imagination and, and insight. And then the bees are the sort of little people, the entrepreneurs, the innovators, the activists and so on, who often have the passion, the drive, can see what needs to change, but don't have the power to do it. So ideally, you try and find a way of linking the bees and the trees. <laughs> so the bees help the trees cross-pollinate and be creative and adapt. And that's how a society evolves. The problem is, of course, they don't talk to each other very often. There aren't very good means of giving the really creative social innovators money and power and access to, to resources. And so we tend to get stagnating, complacent, arrogant big institutions, whether it's say, banks, big businesses or government departments, 
and sort of annoyed, frustrated, angry innovators who can never quite turn their ideas into reality. And the great thing about institutions like Nestor's, they, they are there to try and bridge that gap. And is that one of the things that kind of drew you to... You said, obviously, various things that Nestor did crossed over with what you were doing, but that must have been one of the areas that drew you to being here, the fact that maybe you could do something and help bring those two together, the bees yeah. and the trees. Well, I'd worked in government and, and running policy in Number 10 and strategy for the whole government and sort of saw how things work from the heart of the state, as it were. And when you're there, you realise actually how badly it needs the creativity of the bees, the grassroots. I then went to... Uh, run a small charity in East London, which we renamed the Young Foundation, which very much was that grassroots bottom-up approach. And then Nesta sort of sits halfway in between the two, if you like. And so in your time here, where was Nesta when you first joined and how do you feel it's changed since uh, you've been CEO here? Well, Nesta, when I joined, was uh, still part of government. It was a quango at a time when government was announcing a bonfire of quango. So it was a slightly sort of <laughs> delicate timing, uh, <laughs> moment. Thanks to a lot of smart work by many people, and certainly not just me, we managed to persuade the government to make Nesta independent as a charitable foundation. And then that allowed us to use that independence, I think, to change the ways in which we worked and to look, I hope, much more outwards rather than sort of primarily trying to keep ministers happy. And Nestor has used that freedom partly to reassert, I think, a core mission, which is about public benefit, about really using innovation to meet the needs uh, that people have. We've used it to grow, to, to be much more entrepreneurial, creating new teams and units who've been able to go around the world and find revenues and business. And so Nestor is about five or six times bigger as in numbers of people than it was wow. when I uh, arrived. We've gone much more global. The N in Nesta is national, so we are still a UK-based organisation. We have teams in Cardiff and Edinburgh and around the country, but we've increasingly tried to use our freedom to work with the most exciting innovators around the world, to work with other governments um, from yeah, Canada to Singapore or businesses like Google and Tata and the UN and big agencies. And yeah, on Sunday, I'm off to Kigali in Rwanda, you know, which is probably not somewhere where Nesta would have been working uh, 10 years ago, but I think that's made us more alive, more attuned to creative things happening all over the world which we can learn from. And I'm sure Nesta will continue evolving uh, in the years ahead in ways I can't even imagine. The range of things that Nesta has worked on in your time here and before is quite vast and lots of different areas of innovation. Are there certain things that you're particularly proud of or that you're particularly pleased with doing and creating while you were here? I think one of our, our challenges of communication is probably our core capability is methods of innovation. And in some ways, that's really boring. <laughs> if you talk about methods, people's eyes glaze over. But if you really care about bringing ideas to life, getting them to actually have an impact in the world, you have to really care about methods. And we've really focused on being good at the methods of innovation. How do you run challenge prizes, use data, design experiments, uh, use capital to grow things. And that's never going to be all that glamorous. It's never going to sort of appear in you know, broadsheet media that much. And yet I think it's that underpinning focus on the practicalities of method and what really works, which makes us distinct. And probably in the long run is where we have the biggest impact. The nice thing about this job is that over the years, Nesta has supported literally thousands of organisations with grants and investments and in its early days, many individuals. 
and we keep just bumping into things nestabacked in their early days, and That's then so it maybe nice. took them yeah. ten, 10 years before they really flowered. But all over the UK, and now increasingly all over the world, are people and projects and organisations for whom at a critical moment in their journey, Nesta gave that, them that backing, was willing to sort of take a punt on them, uh, take a risk and allow them to be creative in a way maybe they wouldn't have been able to otherwise. That must be so rewarding. That is rewarding. It's quite hard to keeping track of them, that sort yeah. of thing. There's so many. <laughs> Remembering yeah. names, that's the tricky bit, always. And some of them are quite odd ones, you know, like Nesta back some of the earliest driverless cars, which are now, you know, in use in Heathrow. We backed, you know, individuals who then became amazing theatre directors or things like NT Live, which is, you know, broadcasting theatre in cinemas all over the place or coding clubs training thousands and thousands of kids how to how to code um, software of all kinds. I think our job is to be a little bit behind the scenes, a little bit invisible, the sort of quiet incubator and helper, and then then let others get their credit when they flower. There's already sort of see a a theme in in everything you've done, which is having people involved in the things that they care about and the things that they have to use. And is that your sort of idea of what social innovation needs to be, having the very people involved in it that it will then affect? Well, in a way, this is the inside of much of the world of design and much of business, if you want an innovation to work, it's probably sensible to talk to the people whose needs it's meant to be meeting, probably sensible to involve the people you want to be using it and making it part of their lives. And I guess we're trying to really democratise innovation. So people are involved in setting the priorities, so they're things they care about. They're involved in the process of designing ideas, products, services, and then have some ownership of their implementation. It's kind of not rocket science at all, but it's very, very different from what was the norm 20, 40 years ago when innovation was something done just by laboratories or big companies or big government agencies or the top universities, and then they sort of rained down on a public who were meant to be just sort of passively grateful for them. Now, sometimes that worked, but often it didn't. Sure, and I guess also things then become more effective for more people if you have a greater range of people involved. Yeah, I think it's worth remembering what was the iconic you know, public innovation project of the, the last half of the last century. It was Concord. Right. Now, Concord was technically fantastic, but almost opposite to everything I've described. It uh, worked beautifully in technical terms. It met the needs of a tiny group of you know, society who probably didn't really need to shave two hours off their flight to New York. And it didn't even involve them very much in its design. It was quite unpleasant to be in. And not surprisingly, it was therefore, in the end, a huge commercial failure and, and wasted, in some ways, billions and billions of pounds and before it francs, which could have been spent on solving much more important and much more pressing needs. Absolutely. I like the tagline of being the opposite of Concord. I think that's fantastic. So as I mentioned before, the, the Centre for Collective Intelligence, is, is collective intelligence to do with that, gaining that kind of as much information as possible in order to kind of improve the way that you run things and the way that you design things? Well, th- th- we think there's sort of two really big shifts happening, you could say, in how the world thinks or how the world organises lots of things. One is being very well covered in the media, which is the spread of data and artificial intelligence. So we all have AI in our, in our phones and our computers and in our cars and increasingly making predictions on you know, what might happen to our health or education. But alongside that is this other field which we call collective intelligence, which is basically about mobilising human intelligence at much larger scale, but in systematic ways. Now, some of the examples of this are quite well known, like Wikipedia is a collective intelligence project to organise kind of the world's knowledge in an easily accessible way. But this whole field has had much less attention than AI. 
And yet for most of the things we're interested in, like better healthcare, better education, solving climate change, you actually have to combine the data, the hardware, the AI with CI, otherwise you get rather stupid results. And so what our new centre is doing, the Centre for Collective Intelligence Design, is mainly working on very practical projects which show how you can link data AI with human collective intelligence. And our hope is this will become absolutely common sense in five or ten years' time. The moment is almost unknown by most of government and big business and the universities, but I will bet a large sum of money this will seem blindingly obvious in the fairly near future. <laughs> but you're right, it seems absolutely common sense to say, why don't we use this to make our lives better rather than to hinder it? And I wanted to ask, like, how do you decide which ideas to back, which ideas to work with and, and invest in. There must be a fine line sometimes between the innovations that you feel are going to take off and the innovations that might not work. Well, nearly always we're working with others. So if we can't persuade another institution to work with us, then we have to sort of sit on our ideas. Uh, and so on the collective intelligence side, we're working with the United Nations in dozens of countries. In a way, that's easy because they have got this. They understand it. They can see the huge benefits for them in the fairly near future. Another project we're working is on jobs. And it's quite an interesting one because we're working, in this case, with quite a few governments and big companies like Google and cities to help the people who might be most at risk of losing their jobs to automation. So in every country, like in the UK, there's probably about five or six million people pretty seriously at risk of their job being replaced by some kind of robot or AI. And we're trying to turn that round by asking, well, how can we use the best of data and so on to help those people uh, find new skills, find new jobs, really take control of their life? We're trying to see this as an opportunity, not just as a threat, because, of course, if you can deploy the best of technologies, your whole economy becomes more productive and richer. And so long as you can spread the benefits and help people retrain and adapt, then everyone's better off. But at the moment, I think quite rightly, many people fear there'll be a huge divide between the winners and the losers, and millions of people you know, in 10 years' time will be either out of work or stuck in really low-paid, low-prospects jobs. You mentioned earlier about the sort of money that goes towards, say, military as opposed to, say, social care, but it sometimes must be hard working out which ones to be used in what way. Well, we usually work in a very sort of iterative, experimental way, not massive big bets on a single thing. I do think there is, though, a, a still an argument to be won. So in the US, for example, more than half of all public research and development is military. And that's been the case since the 1940s, a huge military and industrial complex, spending vast sums of money on you know, fighter jets and missiles and so on, in a country where you know, social care is disastrous, Pay has been stagnant for half the population since 1970. Huge problems of crime and racism and social breakdown. And none of those resources go to innovating solutions to those problems. So I think we have a task of advocacy of saying, of course, you have to spend some money on military R&D, but it's kind of mad if that's where most of your resources are going. And then how do you try out new ideas on the ground so you can see if they really do work in practice. And if you do that sensibly, you know, you can reduce the risks of backing dumb things. We've started a number of funds with the UK government where we can try new technologies out in real-world conditions. It should be obvious that's the way to do things. The oddity is most governments don't use experimental methods. They write a law or a policy and try it out on the whole population at once, and then everyone gets a bit surprised it doesn't work very well. 
Whereas other fields like medicine, we assume if you've got an idea for a new drug, you have to trial it you know, with a control group to see if it actually has the effect you hope for. And we're trying to spread that experimental method into lots of other fields from children's social care to education to welfare and so on. I suppose in, in what you're doing, by having test beds, that reduces a risk of people but maybe questioning its, its value. Yeah, well, most of the things we work on, people think are pretty common sense. <laughs> they see them in, in, in practice. The difficulty is getting the resources. It's very rare the big problem for us is sort of public acceptance or public legitimation. Because as I say, most of the things we're involved in look pretty common sense to most of the public. Our challenge is persuading the elites, the power holders, the people with all the money, who are usually stuck in a, in a very different way of thinking, which is much more about hardware. It's much more top-down, as I say, very skewed to fields like the military. And in terms of government spending on innovation, there's a few industries, like aerospace and pharmaceuticals, who've always managed to get vastly more money to back them, more public money, than uh, perhaps the, 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 the more radical, creative social innovators. Obviously, you, you've worked in this field for, for a long time. You, a lot of the ideas and a lot of the innovations that you've worked on at Nesta uh, have sometimes taken a while to come to fruition. One of your ideas where you talked about basing more things on happiness, and uh, you were thinking of that early 2000s, I believe, the late 90s, and it, only recently New Zealand has now based their budget on well-being. Do you have to kind of bide your time with certain ideas? Are there certain things that you come up with that you know it'll be right to present them at this time? Is there a knack to that or is it just persevering with everything? Well, it's often making mistakes. So timing is everything. So yeah, I first got involved in the kind of happiness field mid-90s. I actually made radio programmes on it and wrote reports. And we slowly made progress in beginning to get some politicians and others interested by the mid-2000s. The then president of France got really engaged in it and Germany. And then the financial crisis hit. And, you know, when everyone's struggling to survive, they don't want to hear their leaders talking about happiness. And then slowly things have been picking up again. As you say, Jacinda Ardern has a budget for happiness. UAE has a minister for happiness. Uh, the UK has actually been measuring it through the Office of National Statistics in this decade. And it's beginning to become more mainstream. But these sort of changes take decades because, you know, standing in their way are lots of people whose careers, whose status, whose power depends on a previous way of thinking. And often you just have to wait for them to get out of the way. What's nice talking to you, though, is that you've got lots of hope about things. And, and I wondered if working on such innovations and working with the, the groups and the, and the people that you do, um, you know, a lot of our media at the moment is very fear-mongering. It's a lot of big, scary headlines. And there's a lot of kind of misery. But, you know, does that help you kind of see through that and, and understand that there's, there's hope in the future and there are people working on things that may make our lives better? Well, we're in a very weirdly paradoxical position by most... So the big indicators, the world has never been more successful than now. People are living longer, they're more educated, they're more prosperous. Uh, there's actually less death and murder than ever before in human history proportionately. And yet, partly because of the way media work and social media, we tend to see things through a very distorted lens, where we fixate on the things going wrong, the bad, the, the lies, and so on. So I think there's a distorted sort of lens about hope anyway, and people tend to be much more hopeful about their own lives than they are about society and the world as a whole. 
anyone working at Nesta or an organisation like us is very lucky because we tend to come across the people who are doing positive things, making a difference, making change happen. And you can't spend time with those sort of people without being infected. Hope is quite <laughs> infectious. And I think there's a bigger issue there. In my experience, people who are acting in the world, trying to do stuff, always become more hopeful. Whereas if you're just observing, if you're just detached and standing back, you often become fatalistic and pessimistic. So I'd encourage almost anyone, just as a matter of personal therapy, get involved, do stuff, because it's good for the world, but it'll also be good for you, because it will help you feel the optimism and sense of possibility which comes from active engagement in things. Whereas if you stand on top of a mountain or just read the newspapers or you know, watch your social media feed and react angrily every few seconds, you'll be a pretty miserable person, as well as not much use to anyone else. So you're right, Jeff. And if you want a social media feed that leaves you inspired rather than angry, then give us a follow at Nesta underscore UK on Twitter. And if you enjoyed that, then Jeff has a new book out. It's called Social Innovation, How Societies Find the Power to Change. And it's published by Policy Press and will be available in all good bookselling places. We'll be back next week with more social innovation for the socially curious. But in the meantime, you can get in touch with us by emailing futurecurious at nesta.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Thank you.